anybody who's joining us this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah 62. We're going to pick up in the, the second half of Isaiah chapter 62. We'll go through most of Isaiah 63 today. Isaiah is a 66-chapter book. Uh, it is nearing the finish line. We started Isaiah almost, well, roughly a year and a half ago. We've spent a lot of time in it taking some short breaks to look at some other things. But for the most part, the, for the, most part, the last year and a half has been looking through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah's in this section. It's the back half now of uh, Isaiah from 56 to 66, where Isaiah is saying, uh, portraying the revival that God wants to give his people. And he is doing so on the other end of proclaiming the problem to the people, that they look like the world around them and not like his people. He proclaims the solution to the people. I will send what Isaiah calls my servant, God says, meaning Jesus, that my servant will come. He will live the life you've been called to live. He will die the death that you have deserved and earned with your sin, but he will raise again from the dead. And that this servant will come and he will bring salvation. He will bring the kingdom. And so as we finish out the book, Isaiah is proclaiming what that kingdom looks like today and what it will look like forever. And in the middle of this, in, in, in the middle where it is 60, 61, 62, there are these three poetic visions, these three uh, poetic images of who Jesus is today. And so we're in the third of those, and we're, we're kind of picking that up as we get ready to wrap up the entirety of the book. So if you're a note taker, here you go today. We're going to talk about a king drenched in blood. And so if you, if you are listening at home and you're thinking, okay, didn't expect to see that, we're going to have to wrestle with our images of Jesus today. Is he this passive leader, nonviolent leader? Is he, is he that? Is he the, the frail Jesus that we see depicted in Italian art, kind of swooning and laying in his mother's lap? Or is he a, a military victor drenched in blood from battle? And Isaiah portrays him that way today. So here's a note for you. Isaiah proclaims the eternal kingdom of Jesus, calling us out of exile into renewed creation. The cost of bringing this kingdom and defeating evil on earth is a blood-soaked Jesus. Today, we will see an image of Jesus as a mighty king, a mighty soldier, a mighty conqueror, and that what he is conquering is sin in this world, evil in this world, not forgiveness for sin, but overcoming sin. And so we need to separate those two things today and understand them distinctly. If you will pray with me, we will get started. Jesus, we love you. As we gather this morning, we gather because of you and for you. It is because of you that you gave your life for our sin, that you bled for us to cover our sin and for you because you are the king conquering evil as you massacre all that is evil, bringing us to the place where your kingdom is fully realized here on earth where evil is gone, death and destruction is gone, pain is no more, viruses are no more, corruption in leaders is no more, racism is no more, violence is no more. We anticipate that day. And we know there is a bloody battle between here and there. As we look to you today, Jesus, will you speak to us? May I fade somewhere into the background. And Jesus, will you speak? We are your church 
We desire your word. We need life that can only come from you. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 62, we're going to pick up in verse 8. It says this, The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food to your enemies, food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. This is a future promise. Jesus is speaking. We're in these three chapters where Isaiah is giving us these poetic visions of Jesus speaking to his people. So it's as if Jesus is speaking to us here today. So we'll keep this in the present tense. He says, I will not give your food to your enemies. Foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. In other words, the broken way that this world works right now will cease when, when you work and someone else reaps that benefit. That will come to an end. This celebration in Christ is its fulfillment. The image of eating and drinking while praising Jesus in the kingdom is how we begin today. So here's a note for you, future life. The Bible takes us from the garden and creation destroyed by sin to a renewed and expanded city of God called the kingdom of Christ. Imagine all that is good in life without any of the brokenness and pain of sin. Imagine all that is good in life. Imagine everything this world offers us, the joys, the love, the satisfaction, the worship, the moments of peace, the things that we get here in Christ on earth. Imagine all of that and take away all of the brokenness of this world. Take away all the politics, take away all the disease, take away all the death, take away all the poverty, take away all the dissension, division, racism, violence, take it all away. And then imagine this world where nothing was wrong. Take away every argument with your spouse, every argument with your children, every argument with your neighbor. Take away everything. And Jesus begins to paint this picture of a world renewed by the gospel. Now, just let me kind of parenthetically say something inside of that. That, the, that we can't even imagine, picture, dream of a world without sin. We are so saturated, clouded, depraved by sin that we can't even imagine what that looks like. As God portrays these images for us, what we, what we get is glimpses. We get shadows that look forward to what Jesus will do. We get something that portrays and gives us hope, but we, we don't even know how good it will be to live a life without sin. Like when you wake up in the morning and you're sore and you kind of get up and whatever has caused that, and you just accept that as a part of life. You're just used to that. You barely even think about that anymore. All that gone. And even the things that we don't recognize that are part of this brokenness are taken away. Verse 10 says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. I want you to see this progression. We are first, right? Go through, he says, go through the gates, right? We enter into this kingdom, not only first, but we enter into it now. That we get to enter into and participate in the kingdom of Jesus today. And then there's a command, prepare the way for the people, right? Build up, build up the highway, he says. Notice that it's gone from a garden to a city. Notice that it's gone from small and beautiful to growing and completed. That now we have given, been given a command to prepare for people. 
It's because of our situation today. It's, it's because of the things that we endure that passages like this are necessary. It's, it's because the world around us is so broken. It's because we are at distance right now because of a virus. It's, it's, and if it's, it, even if you're on the other side that says, well, it's not really because of the virus, it's because of governmental authority. Okay, so either way, it's because of sin and disease and death, or it's because of sin and power and politics and humanity. Either way, we're separated. We're separated because of flaws in this world, flaws of today. There's an economy that's hurting. There's been joblessness and hurt in the homes. There's, there's politics of division on both sides being played out. There's racism and violence in the streets still. Because of all this, Jesus points us forward to eternity. He says, prepare the way for the people. Build up. Our job is to build up. We don't tear down this world. We build up the kingdom. We let the kingdom through us take root, in us take root, so that through us it can grow. We, we don't have to tear down this world. We just do what Jesus has called us to, and we begin to grow the kingdom. If you're a note taker, here we are, preparing for others. Our job today is to build up the kingdom, to prepare for others, to be a voice that calls out to others. We are Christ today. That means we are in his kingdom today. So we join in his work today. We are Christ's kingdom here on earth in this broken world as two worlds collide and as they begin to overlap, we're the overlap. It says that you can imagine those two circles just kind of coming together and as they overlap, there we are in the now and not yet. There we are in the eschatological or end times reality of the kingdom here on earth. We live in that. Yet it is not complete. We're not bound by the world, and we are not yet freed into all eternity, but we are in the kingdom here and now. Verse 11, Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's us, the, the, the children of the kingdom, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Behold, your salvation comes is an assurance. It's not written as, hey, you can, you can hope you get it, but, but no, behold, your salvation has come. Verse 12, they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. There's you shall be called. It is written in the perfect tense in Hebrew, that meaning it is accomplished already. Again, we live in that now and not yet. Now it is already accomplished on our behalf. Now it is already accomplished on people who have not yet even come to faith. It is accomplished for them. It is done, but not yet complete. It is complete in Christ, not yet complete in us. You shall be called, sought out. We've talked about being a holy people. We've talked a lot about being redeemed, something that was worthless, thrown away, but that God has taken and made new, made of value and given a purpose, redeemed. Today I want to look at that. We are called, sought out. Jesus says, you shall be called, sought out, reminding us that Jesus sought us out before we came to him. He redeems, he saves, he promises one of the amazing great things about being from a Reformed tradition is that we come from a place of not only theocentricity, where God is central to everything, or Christocentricity, where Jesus is central to everything, but we come from a place of God's sovereignty, 
where God acts and we respond. It is not that we have gone and sought after God, that we have become these people who have been enlightened because of our efforts. It's that God has spoke our name. God has called our names. And that our hearts have responded. Remember the verse I quoted for you last week, Ezekiel 36, 26, where it says, I will take out of you a heart that is of stone, and I will put into you a heart made of flesh. And I always use that language of one that can beat for God. God does this. I will cleanse you. I will give you my spirit. I will cause you to walk in my ways and for you to be careful to obey my commands. God causes. And then in faith, we respond to God. Jesus says, you will be called the sought out. So here's a note for you. Jesus reminds us that we are the chosen people and royal priesthood that Peter tells us about, that Jesus has redeemed. We are the kingdom, even in this broken world. That when we were running headlong into hell, when we were running away from Jesus, when I was looking anywhere but at God, Jesus rescued me, called my name, that it wasn't of anything I contributed, but it was all God who saved me. That it was all God who saves you. And that we turn to God in response, and that we live our lives in response to God. And that our security in the kingdom in God is secured by Jesus. It's not at risk. I can't even ruin my salvation. If Jesus has given it to me, it is good, it is mine, it is complete. If Jesus has saved you, you are saved, not hopefully saved. That you are his. And as he says in John 10, no one can steal you out of his hands. You are secure. Now, this is, this is no excuse to continue and go on sinning. That's what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where we see grace as costing us nothing, but it costs Christ everything. This blood-soaked king we're about to read about was first soaked in our blood when he bled on the cross. That he, is, that he bled to cover our sin, but now, now we get an image of a new Jesus. It cost Christ everything to get us to this point. That if your life has been transformed by Jesus, if you are equipped with his spirit, if you are favored by God, it is because Jesus rescued you. It is by nothing you have done. We are saved by grace through faith says Paul to the church in Ephesians, and to and the church in Ephesus. Isaiah 63, starting out in verse 1, says this, Who is this who comes from Edom? Now remember, Edom means red, and Edom is an image of all that is wrong in the world. Who is this that comes from Edom? In crimson garments, meaning blood-soaked, from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in greatness of his strength. We get the images of both a king and a military victor. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. We have this image. Who is coming soaked in blood, yet wearing royal garments? A military hero calling out mighty to save, yet drenched in the blood of others. And Jesus says, it is I. It is me. It's me coming to you. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This can only be Jesus. As he calls out to us, here's what we need to do today. We need to set aside prior images of Jesus. Not that they're wrong or untrue. Some may be, some may not be. We need to set aside our images of Jesus to see this one. To see the passive Jesus who laid down his life to rescue us and save us does not mean in every instance he is passive. 
to see the weak Jesus who is uh, strong, but in his humanity is, is weak and weeping in the garden. Or to see Jesus who is strong and carrying his cross to his very own death. To see Jesus stretched out on a cross crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? To see this, this is to see not a frail Jesus, but a strong Jesus who carried the sins of humanity on his back. That in our sin, Jesus has covered our sin. He did so through strength. He was passive because he was headed to the cross, not because he was weak. When, when he was told, you know, I can save you, he says, you have no authority over me, only God. I lay down my life and I pick it back up, he says. He says it in strength. The gospel is Jesus in strength. Italian artwork has seen a frail Jesus who is laid out in the lap of Mary often. And we see this image and we're, we're not portrayed a man who grew up a carpenter working before power tools who was strong and probably had calloused hands and, 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 was, and was tough and was hardened by real work. And, and we don't see that. We see the Jesus who let people accuse him and didn't defend himself because he needed no defense before God. We see a Jesus who is beaten within an inch of his life and still carries his cross. We see a Jesus who lays down his life, and then we see a Jesus who picks his life back up at the resurrection. That Jesus lives and rules and reigns today. John will describe him in Revelation as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. A lamb who had been killed but is alive. That is strength. And today we see Jesus on the march against evil like a military hero, a king in battle. Edom, who is humanity at our worst, he says, who is this that comes from Eden? Who is this that comes from, from complete and utter wickedness? Who is this bloodied from war? He says, crimson garments marching in the greatness of his strength. And then Jesus says, it is me. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, Jesus says. So here comes this Jesus, a king, drenched in blood, that he is, he is coming now and marching towards his people. He has overcome evil. He has defeated sin. He has conquered. And now he comes to his children. He says this, why? Excuse me. And he is asked, verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And Jesus responds, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. Remember that. We'll talk about this later. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I have trodden the winepress alone. I, I have no one with me, Jesus says. We'll, we'll talk about that. But I, I want to talk about shifting our image of Jesus first. We'll put this on the screen. Our passive and tender images of Jesus are incomplete. Not that they're false, they're incomplete. Isaiah reveals Jesus covered in our blood at the cross, overcoming sin in Isaiah 53. Then covered in wicked humanity's blood, overcoming evil in Isaiah 63. This is the Jesus that we need in our lives in order to endure. We need the one who has not only overcome our sin, but who can overcome evil in the world. It's that Jesus that empowers us to be a part of the kingdom. It's, it's that Jesus victorious in war. We know it's his kingdom that takes over the broken kingdom of earth. It's him that is coming, and we have this image of his strength. 
Verse 4. For the day of the vengeance, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. See, today life is corrupt with sin. But the kingdom of Jesus will overthrow it. Jesus does this by overtaking our sin, by by conquering the sin in us. Jesus does this by overcoming Satan's sin and death on the cross. As he is buried in the ground, his his death covers our sin. But as he raises from the grave, his, his power gives us life. Just as he raises from life, we are given new life. That's why Jesus teaches the Pharisee in John 3 that comes to him and asks questions. How do I inherit eternal life? And he says, you must be born again. He says, you must be born again. Those who are born of the flesh are flesh. Those who are born of the spirit are spirit. You must be made new. And only can we be made new by the spirit of Christ, as it will go on to say in John and today. The the gospel is the very thing that transforms us, but the gospel doesn't stop. It propels us forward. It continues to transform us day after day after day as we seek to become more like Jesus. Jesus says, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. You see, the gospel is this message of God's love and God's outreach and God's sovereignty over humanity. It is this message that God loves you wants to rescue you from all that holds you back. It's the God who wants to empower you, forgive you, and make you his child. But it's also a message that says there is a date when that will be over. There is a date when I will return and conquer all of evil. And Jesus is now returning as if we see him from afar, marching forward, drenched in blood. We know he is king, and yet he is a military hero. And he is coming back, and as as Isaiah presents him to us, He returns and says, that day has come. I don't know when that day is, and I push back against the plethora of people online saying that that day is near, because those people have been saying that for 2,000 years. So I just, I I look through this, and and I look at what, what must I learn from this, rather than the time has come or the time is near. What must I learn from this if I live my life to be an old man, if I live a life that is long with years, long with age. What must we learn? If Jesus does not return in our life, what should we hear from this? So it's a different message. It's not that, hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Don't worry about it. It's going to be over soon. What if it isn't? And for 2,000 years, people have been asking this question, what must we know if we live a long life? Verse 5 says, I looked, but there was no one to help. Jesus speaking. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. Remember from earlier, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. Now, Jesus says this, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one. Here's what he's saying. Listen, as I went to do the work of bringing my kingdom, I looked, and even amongst my people, no one was there to help. And this is an indictment on Israel. This is an indictment of God's people. As Jesus even entered into human history, most of his own people rejected him. This is an indictment today on the church too. 
As God looks down at us or looks down to us and Jesus calls to us to be his kingdom here on earth and hold all his teaching in tension because sometimes his teachings don't all easily line up with easy answers. We were talking about this before service, but Jesus has commanded us to sing songs of worship. So we must worship. No matter what the governor says, we must sing songs of worship to God. We believe that is a calling. We must also care for the vulnerable. We're trying to figure out how to do that. We must also have an outside witness. We must show the world what Jesus looks like. We do that best when we not only fulfill our commandment to worship, but also remember the commandments in Romans 13, where we are to submit to our governing authorities. To our governors, we are to submit until they call us to worship another God or not to worship God at all. And so, so many people are arguing about, we should just do this, we should just ignore the governor, but that doesn't honor God. Our submission is to God. So we submit to God by singing, and we submit to God by obedience, and that's why we're meeting at distance. And in that way, we also care for the marginalized, care for the vulnerable, and we also show Jesus to the world around us. For all of those who are gathering in disobedience right now, what is your witness to others in the world around you? Do they see you as anything other than the rebellious Christian who just wants their own way or talks more about their American civil liberty than to pick up our cross and carry it and follow Jesus as he did? That Jesus always obeyed even when it was hard. And when posited with questions like this about taxes, what do we do? Jesus always called us to be obedient without ever compromising our worship of God. Let us be the same way. Let us live with the hardships of obedience, fulfilling all the callings of God. He says, I looked, behold, there was no one. One of the most heartbreaking things that I see in Scripture is this. I'm going to do these next two slides in reverse. Isaiah 57.1 says this, and we read this just a few weeks ago. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Here's what Isaiah says. As Jesus looks down on his kingdom, on his people, he says the righteous man is perishing, is going away. The one who seeks to please God and not humanity is drifting away and no one even notices. No one mourns the loss of the truly righteous. Jesus says the same thing. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. When I went to do the work... Everybody was too caught up in their own thing. Jesus says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one, says Jesus. So here's a note for you. Where are the faithful? Isaiah makes a devastating claim that Jesus finds no one to help. It's a painful reminder that the church is so often distracted with this world that we are unavailable to help build the kingdom. We must change this. This is not for the world around us. This is for Christians, those who identify themselves by Jesus. We must change this. We must become the faithful. We must be the servants of Jesus. We must deny ourselves. Even if the Constitution gives us rights, it does not supersede our calling from God. And in the same way, if the Constitution took away our worship of God, it would not supersede the call of God. On the strengths and on the weaknesses, on the positives and on the negatives, nothing controls us but God. I am grateful for a country who gives us incredible religious liberty and freedom. But we are bound to what God calls us to. Nothing supersedes that. 
Verse 7, Jesus says, I will recount with the steadfast love of the Lord the praises of the Lord according to all that God has grant, the Lord has granted to us. Excuse me, this is Isaiah speaking in the presence of this. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So let's look at a little application. So what do we do with this today? Recalling the goodness of Jesus, we'll put this on the screen. Isaiah teaches us to recount the steadfast love of the Lord. While we are in the midst of brokenness, we remind ourselves and others about Jesus' faithfulness when we retell how he has rescued us. It keeps our eyes on him. Isaiah is speaking to Israel, reminding them of the, of the deliverance from Egypt. And in fact, by the time, because Isaiah covers almost 200 years of history, Israel's and Judah's history, by then, they will have also been delivered from Babylon by the Persian Empire and released to go back to their own country. Two waves of exile, by the time this is completed, will have returned to Jerusalem. And so God is saying, Isaiah is telling the people of God, remember, tell the stories over and over and over again of God's goodness. Remind us daily when it's hard out. Tell the stories even more. For us today, we not only have that but we also have the next 2,500 years of God's goodness. We have God's goodness in fulfilling all his promises in Christ. We have God's goodness of the church expanding throughout all the known world. We have God's promises of protecting that faith over history. And even though it's been pushed and pulled and divided and done this, here we are today with a Bible that we can trust and a God that is good and a spirit within us and Jesus still on the throne. Here we are today with our stories of how God has transformed us. One of the most powerful things I heard doing Rooted with all our groups over the last three months or so was people telling the story of how God had transformed their lives, of hearing high school students, even ones who had been raised in the church, telling their stories about how God had transformed them and given them a faith of their own, hearing adults who had been all over the place, all over uh, from raised Christian to raised completely on the other side of things, and how God has transformed their lives. Telling those stories keeps us reminded that God is good, that God is powerful, that God is at work even when we don't see him all the time. Just before service, I was talking to a friend here and I was talking about that we're, we have several baptisms that have even, uh, many of them are people who have come to us and, and have made a decision to follow Jesus through coronavirus season, through this last season of life, who've made a decision that they want to identify themselves with Jesus now through baptism. A couple are before that. But even through this crazy season, people are being transformed by the goodness of Jesus. We need to be telling those stories. We need to be sharing that with people so that we know God is present, we know God is good, we know God is here, even in the midst of trial. That Jesus is still overcoming evil as we speak. When all we can see is evil around us, we need to know that this blood-soaked king is our king and that he is being victorious over evil. That people whose lives were, were either given to themselves or something else are coming to faith. That evil is being put to death and that children of God are arising. We got good news this last week of somebody who had a horrible case of coronavirus who is now well and come home. We get to hear of God's goodness all the time. Are we telling those stories? 
Verse 8, it says, For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior, talking about Jesus. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved him, them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Even though Isaiah is written, I think it's 720-ish, almost uh, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus is born. And the story plays out until about 500 or so years Jesus, before Jesus was born. It proclaims his death and his resurrection so clearly that Isaiah speaks about it as if it's already happened in this part. That Isaiah was so clear that the suffering servant would come and that he would be afflicted for our afflictions, that he would be pierced and crushed for our sin, and then he would raise again, again to life, that he proclaims it here in this section as it has already happened. Here's what he says. His afflictions heal us. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, meaning Jesus was afflicted. His presence sustains us. The angel of his presence saved them. His love redeems us. He says, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. Again, taking something without worth and giving it value. That's what he has done to all of us who are in Christ. His goodness carries us. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, Isaiah is telling this to Israel, to the people who would have known of the deliverance of Egypt, who would have known of the deliverance, some of them who would have been delivered out of Babylon. They know the times the, that where King David reigned and where others lost. They know the goodness of God. They heard God calling out to them, calling out to the generations before them who would not listen. And so God sent them into exile to catch their attention, to get them to a place where they would return to him, repent, and turn back to him. And now he's delivered them by a pagan king, a Persian king, delivered them from Babylon and sent them back to their home. They know of the goodness of God. They know of the faithfulness of God. They know of the love of God. They know of the empowerment of God. And church, we need to too. We have even more. We have another 2,500 years of history, of our faith, of God's goodness. And we have our own stories of God's faithfulness and goodness. Verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. It's a reminder of rebellion, rebellion in all our lives. Here's a note for you, rebellion and salvation. Isaiah writes about the people's disobedience. They're disciplined by God in exile and then their deliverance when they repent. It's a reminder to us today that repentance precedes restoration and blessing. It's a reminder to you and I that we all rebel. We all turn to our selfishness. We all end up looking more like the people around us than we look like Jesus. And when we do that, it's a reminder that rebellion ends in, in, in death. But because of Jesus, rebellion doesn't end there. It, when we are ready, when we turn, when we repent, we come back. And if we go too far, God, who loves us, will stop that and get our attention. No matter how harsh it may be, it is for our good. That God will bring us back. And that repentance precedes uh, blessing and fulfillment. Repentance precedes restoration and blessing is how I put it on the screen. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of him, 
of them, his Holy Spirit. Isaiah asks a question to remind us of God's faithfulness. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Where is God now for you? Where are the leaders like Moses now for you? Let's start back at verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This closes up with the, the takeaway, the application that you and I get today. Tell the stories of God's goodness. Tell the stories of God's goodness in our lives. Tell the story of how God finally captured us, our hearts and made us his own. Tell the stories of how God got us through hardships. Tell the stories of God's faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his enduring. Tell those stories. Tell the stories that scripture has given us of all those things. Tell the stories of God's calling and blessing of man's sin and rebellion, of God's bringing Jesus for redemption and restoration, and how God blesses and pours out love on those who will follow him in Christ. Tell of those stories. That's our takeaway. So at the end, Isaiah reminds us, he speaks the word of Jesus reminding us, remember when, remember what takes place when we follow God. So two things I want to close with. One, his spirit carries us. Jesus gives us his spirit to empower us. The same spirit who empowered Jesus to suffer and die and empowered Jesus to win a bloody victory over evil empowers you and I to live in obedience, right? The same Holy Spirit. Now, since we talked about baptism just a minute ago, uh, let me say this. One of the things that I got to talk about during Rooted with, uh, with our adults and with our students and all that was that the Holy Spirit is a promise of baptism, right? That when someone begins to follow Jesus, that the calling is to be baptized, right? When, when someone comes to faith, one of the first things we do is we tell them, hey, be baptized. And this is really comes out of Acts 2, where Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit after the ascension, walks outside and preaches to thousands in Jerusalem, many of whom, thousands of whom come to faith, and they ask Peter, Peter, what should we do? We're, we're the same people that just shouted for Jesus' death just, just weeks ago. Peter, what do we do? And he tells me, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children. And so he teaches us about baptism. He says, listen, your act of obedience, your response to salvation is to make a public declaration to be united with the local church in faith. And I give you a promise. I give you my spirit. And I will give you the Holy Spirit. If you've never been baptized, let me just say this. Please reach out. Let me know. We don't know what it's going to look like right now, but we know we're going to do baptism soon. We know that that's coming. We're trying to figure out the logistics of that right now. How do we do it in ways that honor our government, that honor God, not in that order. How do we do that in places that, that care for the marginalized who also are a good witness to others? How do we do that? And, and we're beginning to answer those questions. If you've never been baptized and you would like that promise of God's spirit to be fulfilled in you, this is for you and your family, this is for you, the follower of Jesus. 
Would you just reach out and let me know? You can message us, you can email me, whatever would be good for you. Second note, image, uh, images Isaiah uses. And I want you to just kind of close with this and think of this. Isaiah shows us that we are, one, servants preparing a city for others. Two, the redeemed who are now made worthy. And three, covenant children of God. And fourth, shepherds like Moses, caring for a future not yet revealed. Like Moses, most likely, we will be the ones who get near but don't get to see. And again, maybe Jesus comes first. Maybe we get to see it all. Maybe we never die. Maybe we are transformed in an image, in a minute, into the image of Christ and reign here. Maybe. But most likely, we will live lives like those before us who get to the edge of the promise like Moses and look out and we get a glimpse of it, but we don't enter in in this life. And if that's the case, what do we do? We're called to be servants who call others to Jesus. We are called the redeemed. We're reminded that our value is not in ourselves, but in Christ. That we are made children of God. We are not some kind of weird connection to a group. of. We are God's children. We are united to God. Nothing less. But also, we are to be servants like shepherds who, who go and follow and pursue the words of God, caring for a future not yet revealed. That we live in the now and the not yet. We live here where the kingdom is now and where it has not fully come yet. We live here, but we also bring other people into here. Generations Church, we live because Christ lives. We're empowered because he's given us his spirit. We serve because he served us by laying his life down. But we don't serve a weak or passive Jesus. We serve a king who will ultimately be drenched in the blood of his enemies. We live in that power, and it is him that we serve. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. I, I gravitate to images of your power, of your victory. Lord, my life was such a mess before you that I, I needed a powerful Savior, a powerful God. I needed someone who could rescue and save me. And Jesus, I find that image of you all throughout Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, front to back, Jesus, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are mighty to save. You are power and victory. And if evil will stand in your way, you will slaughter evil and wear its blood. And that image may be grotesque to some, but for me, it is hope. For me, it means you're big enough to solve the problems, that you are great enough to follow, and that you will endure and be King of kings and Lord of lords forever. So Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Jesus, it is your name that we worship. We love you, Jesus. Amen.